ACRM is 100 years old this year. Join us in Atlanta this October for our 100th anniversary annual conference. The largest interdisciplinary rehabilitation research conference in the world will feature hundreds of instructional courses, symposia and papers and posters, and an expo hall with over 100 exhibitors and sponsors. Go to acram.org register. Did you know each year between 250,000 and 500,000 people worldwide suffer from spinal cord injuries, with the majority of these being preventable? These injuries are most often caused by road traffic crashes, falls, or violence, according to the World Health Organization. Quick pop quiz. What is the medical term for losing the ability to control your body temperature that can impact a person with a spinal cord injury? Don't go anywhere. We'll reveal the answer at the end of this episode of the Rehab Cast, the official podcast of the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine and the Archives of PMNR. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Niehaus from the University of Colorado. As a neurorehabilitation specialist, I find spinal cord injury is the diagnosis that showcases the best of a rehabilitation care team. It requires the whole rehab team to help people relearn how to manage all aspects of daily living, from optimizing bowel and bladder to maximizing independence with medical equipment and coping with the psychological impacts after an injury. Today on the Rehab Cast, I first delve into a study that focuses on technology use and social participation after tetraplegia and discuss how it might challenge our assumptions about racial and ethnic disparities. Then stick around for the second article that investigates how clinicians can approach anxiety following a spinal cord injury. I personally found a few clinical pearls in both discussions. Now on to the first article, Racial and Ethnic Disparities of Social Participation After Tetraplegic Injury, a regression analysis by occupational therapist, PhD, Stephanie Kubiak, and associate professor, Dr. Elliot Sklar. Welcome to the RehabCast. Please tell us a little bit about yourselves. My name is Stephanie Kubiak. I go by she, her. So a little bit about my background is I'm an assistant professor at Gannon University. It's a small private university up in Erie, Pennsylvania. So I teach in their occupational therapy program. I recently completed my post-professional PhD in health science from Nova Southeastern University in 2022. And I've been an occupational therapist since 2011, working primarily in inpatient settings, hospital, inpatient rehab, and also in the community. In 2019, I collaborated with a local gym owner and co-founded and continue to run a nonprofit called Functional Performance. And that's a place where we provide inclusive and accessible group exercise for individuals living with disabilities in the community. And I am Elliot Sklar. I am an associate professor of health science at Nova Southeastern University in Florida. I have a doctorate in public health and a master of science in communication, which made this research especially interesting for me since it involves technology as a communication tool used towards social participation. And I was very proud to serve as chair of Stephanie's dissertation committee. Really throughout my career, the common link to my research and my work has been my interest in health disparities and how we can work to reduce them. 
Thanks for being here, and I'm really excited to talk with you about your paper, Racial and Ethnic Disparities of Social Participation After Tetraplegia Injury, a Regression Analysis. So as we're about to jump into this, I'm always curious, what were the pieces that led up to even thinking about doing this type of study? So when I was going through my PhD, I started my dissertation in 2020. (laughs) So interesting time. We had to decide what kind of route we want to go to. So uh, primary research was probably not the best choice due to the safety and ethics behind collecting data from participants during a worldwide pandemic. Uh, So we went a different route, doing a secondary analysis of a publicly available data set. And so I pretty much scoured the internet, kind of seeing what was out there. I was specifically looking for something that had disability measures in it and some kind of participation component, you know, as an occupational therapist. So I honed in on the National Spinal Cord Injury Model System. It's a very big study. It's been ongoing since the 1970s. It's a large observational cohort study that collects data from individuals who've experienced a traumatic spinal cord injury in the United States. So there are multiple centers across the country that enroll and and collect data from these participants. And since the 1970s, they've had over 35,000 participants. And so looking at that data set, they collect hundreds of variables. So they collect information every five years after injury. And so after looking through all the variables, we selected social participation as the thing that we wanted to investigate and specifically social participation and people that have experienced a higher level spinal cord injury. So tetraplegia and, you know, what kind of things influence social participation. And so we decided to kind of investigate more of the technology, Internet, assistive technology and the sociodemographic variables like race, ethnicity income, education, and other things. So as you started to build that research question and you were looking at it, were there any things you had to modify or think about as you started to build the methods or approach the data set to try and get a valuable amount of material out of it to talk about? It's kind of hard when you're doing a secondary analysis because you don't have the freedom to pick the thing that you want to measure. And so you're working with the variables that are built into the data set. And so we went kind of round and round back and forth multiple times and ended up picking internet particip- like using the internet frequency, social participation. Did they use assistive technology? Any comments from you, Dr. Sklar? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, there's always going to be some drawbacks when using archival data in the sense that you don't have the same level of creativity and flexibility to manipulate and specifically ask the questions that you may ideally be looking for. However, on the flip side, it offers you the ability to use a national data set that we know is widely representative. And so to me, that advantage supersedes what of the potential negatives that might exist in being bound to using what the data can and cannot tell us. And yes, just to add to that, I think when you're looking at a specific subpopulation, you know, spinal cord injury and going a little step further and narrowing that down even further to tetraplegia, you know, having access to a large enough data set to really pull some good results with participants, we ended up with over 3000 participants in the study. And so that I don't think that would have been feasible for me if I was doing primary research. That was definitely an advantage of using that data set. Absolutely. 
So now you have the data set, you, you kind of have your research question built and you're looking into the various things. How did you go through the thought process of, you know, without diving into too many of the details, the particular way you were going to analyze that, or how did you choose the associations you had and what was the choice around that? And there was probably some interesting questions you were asking each other when you built that. And I'm curious what those were. Yeah, a lot of the variables that we selected were based on the prior evidence that's out there about spinal cord studies, social participation related research. But we really looked at the variables and the question that we were asking. And we ended up deciding what is the thing that we care about? And the thing that we cared about is who has high social participation and who doesn't. And so that kind of led the way of how we developed the methodology. And so the outcome that we were looking at was yes or no. Did they have social high social participation or did they not? What predicted that? And so based on that variable alone, it was like a binary variable. And then the multiple predictors that we had, we ended up pursuing and going with a binary logistic regression. That's awesome. Then that was explained better than I could have done it even having read your paper. So oh, awesome, awesome job Thanks. with that. So now you have the data, you have the analysis in place, you start to move it through the system. What were the things that you found interesting or things that you think this study helped add or shine light on? I think the most interesting thing that we found were, at least for me, were the disparities, hence the title of the paper. I think that while there were some interesting findings that when it comes to the technology, what technology predicted higher social participation, I think what we also found was what demographics predicted low or like not high social participation. And so I think that was a, a big takeaway for me. Now, going back to the device use, I will say internet, we found was the biggest predictor. So when internet was in the equation of use, it was always a significant predictor. So computer and internet compared to people that, that didn't use any technology, they were over two and a half times more likely to have high social participation. You add an assistive technology device, low tech, high tech, doesn't matter, that increases the odds by an additional 15%. So I think that was interesting. So internet does, is a predictor. Now the disparities that we found were income, education, race, and ethnicity. So family income, participants that had a household income of greater than 50,000 were three times more likely to have high social participation than the participants that had a household income of less than 25,000. Same with education. Participants that had beyond high school education had greater odds by 46% when you compare it to participants that had less than a high school education. And then when we get to race and ethnicity, race, Black participants had a 28% lower odds of high social participation when you compare them to white participants. And when we look at ethnicity, Hispanic participants had 40% lower odds of having that high social participation compared to non-Hispanic. I think that really kind of highlights the key takeaways, those disparities, at least for me. When you think about that, probably heading into this, you had some idea about what you might find. And I'm curious from where you thought it might be to what it actually showed. What was the difference there? Were you feeling like it was going to be close to this or it was this disparity difference even more than you would have predicted? I think the disparity was more than 
I would have predicted. But having said that, I think some of the research doesn't necessarily making it glaringly obvious that there are these disparities. So it wasn't in the front of my mind. But man, when you go back and look at the prior evidence and research in this area, the pattern is there. The pattern, the disparities are present and consistently. And so after looking and kind of going down that rabbit hole of like, why is this pattern happening? We pretty much tied it back to inequities when it comes to race and income. So, you know, racial and ethnic inequities, that's, you know, when racial and ethnic groups face barriers such as structural racism that result in disparities in care or the ability to be healthy and income inequity, that's that unequal distribution of income across individuals and families in in the country. So as an example of this, that out of all the developed countries in the world, the United States measures as having one of the highest income inequalities, despite having one of the biggest economies and the highest gross domestic product of all the developed countries. So it kept leading back to that income inequity, racial inequity. And so thinking about the bigger picture, you know, you have somebody that has experienced a disability, tetraplegia, which is a, it's a significant disability, potentially. And on top of that, if an individual is Black or Hispanic or, you know, low income, those disparities just multiply. So it just magnifies. And I would add that there is other current research that supports all of the things that this research has found and that Stephanie has just shared. By 2019, it was reported that only 59% of individuals with a disability had access to high-speed internet in their homes. And by 2021, that went up to 72%, but that is still lower than the 78% of adults without a disability. And if you think about how technology is used, for example, during the pandemic, how we use that as a lifeline to communicate and to actively participate socially with others, the implications are profound for people with tetraplegia. Absolutely. You know, on top of the pandemic, which was isolating in and of itself, you add some physical impairments on that from a neurologic injury like tetraplegia. And I can't imagine what that would have been like to go through that as an individual. Your tables are excellent in here, and I would recommend all the listeners to look at them because they really break all of these down excellently with lots of details. And we're kind of going over the top right now. But I'm curious, are there any other insights or pearls or things that ended up coming out when you looked at the data that you want to make sure people hear about? Something that I found interesting that wasn't significant was gender or sex. So I didn't find any difference in female or male being a predictor more than the other of social participation. So I thought that was interesting. And also another thing that didn't really come out as glaringly predictive was the impairment, the uh, severity of impairment using that Asia impairment scale. So incomplete or incomplete sensory or we added that to the model. And if anything, I would have anticipated a complete tetraplegia participant experiencing lower social participation, but that wasn't necessarily what we found. So I think the things that weren't predicted also helped tell a story. Even if an individual appeared as highly impaired tetraplegia complete injury, the internet access and some of the other socioeconomic impacts were greater than 
the actual impairment. There wasn't that correlation there, if I understand you correctly. Yeah, that that's correct. So the income, the education was more of a predictor. The impairment scale, we put it in the model and it came out as not a good fit or, or not significant. It didn't contribute. So something to consider when it comes to future research, when we think about the impairment scale is actually the level of injury. So that's something I went back and looked and some studies included more of like higher tetraplegia. So like maybe C1 to C4 and kind of separated them out from C5 and lower. So you can kind of see, because I think that may be something that could show up as contributing or, or significant when it comes to social participation. But for some reason, that Asia impairment scale, the different categories did not. So it's more about the income, um, the education, at least when it comes to the variables that we included. Did you have any other thoughts on that or other closing thoughts on things you found interesting with the specific data set or what came out of it? I found that the results were very interesting in the sense that the patterns that the results revealed are consistent with literature that came before it. So that was not surprising. What I shared earlier in terms of the limitations of working with archival data and some of the benefits, survey data lacks the ability to truly understand the lived experiences of the individuals included in the study. And I wish that we did have that ability to have more information. For example, how savvy were people with technology ahead of their injury and what access, you know, thus did their injury preclude them from having more internet use or not? How important did they think it would be to their social participation? These are things that, of course, we can't reveal with using survey data. Very well said. Now that you're kind of thinking about this study that's great. It'll come out in the ACRM very soon. What are the next steps for you? What are the things that this study has prompted you to think about next? For me, doing a similar study, but using a different data set, that is a traumatic brain injury model system. So trying to ask a similar question, again, limited by the data that's collected and the measures that they chose because they're not the same. So it may be a little bit of a challenge to compare, but I'm pretty much asking the same question and exploring that database. That's awesome. I look forward to seeing that. Thanks. I would say that as a health educator, the disparities in this research were significant. In my mind, they also mirror some of the disparities that we see within the rehabilitation professions, which are predominantly white and non-Hispanic. And so I feel like studies such as this and other research that goes to look at some of the disparities that exist within communities who are already experiencing other disparities is very significant. I think it's important that we teach this to students who will become uh, rehabilitation professionals of tomorrow, but also to attract a more broad audience in terms of applicants to the field. It's so critical that patients see and have the experiences of professionals that are serving them, that they can share lived experience. Absolutely. I could not agree more. And I, I really, really liked your paper. Let's move on into the lightning round. And you guys can choose who answers these, or you both can, totally up to you. But the first question I like to ask is, tell me about a piece of good advice you've received. I don't know if it's advice or a mantra that I follow, but get comfortable being uncomfortable. If I'm in a state of uncomfortableness, then I must be experiencing something new, learning something, pushing myself. 
outside of that comfort zone. So I kind of keep that in the back of my mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. I will share that when I was working on my doctorate many, many years ago, there was a very, very popular book at the time and a film or, or video called The Last Lecture. It was very significant to me in helping me through the process of my dissertation. And the one piece of advice within it was that the walls are not there to keep you out. They're there to remind you how much you want. And I always think of that when I'm feeling stuck or struggle. And I think that that's a great piece of advice. I like both of those. That's great. All right, moving on to the next one. You're facing a really big decision and you need some help. Tell me what you do or who you call. Me personally, I'm a muller. Like I will, I will sit and think about it obsessively <laughs> for a few days before I can make a decision. Or I'll, I'll call some good uh, friends of mine that have been there for me that have went through the PhD program with me. So, so they're, they're like my little support system. So I, I can always call them. <laughs> I'm fortunate to be living in Florida and near the beach. I usually take a long walk along the ocean. And that seems to help bring me some calm and ease um, the decision-making process. You're at the ACRM conference, and you're unpacking your suitcase, and you find $40 that you didn't know was there. What do you do with it? I'm a shop local person, so and I, I'm a foodie person too, so I'm going to go to a local restaurant and try some kind of local food that's known in that area. <laughs> and I will be there with Stephanie enjoying that local food. <laughs> nice. All right. If you could go back in time 10 years, what would you tell yourself or what advice would you give yourself? So I would tell myself, don't worry, you'll be done with school before you're 40. So just just suck it up and keep going. <laughs> and I think for me, it would be to to live in the present more, to enjoy the moment. We're always so busy thinking about the future. Um, but the present is so important. It's a gift. That's right. It's all, you almost said the, one of my favorite lines from Kung Fu Panda. <laughs> Stephanie, have you seen Kung Fu Panda? No, I haven't. <laughs> no. One of the, the Kung Fu masters is Master Ugwe. And uh, Elliot's nodding along like he knows what I'm talking about. So we'll go with it. He said, tomorrow's a mystery, yesterday's history it's actually a quote by Eleanor Roosevelt, and uh, that's the oh. origin of it. Um, but it's yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery. Today is a gift, and that's why we call it the present. That's what it, that's what it is. Oh, I had no idea that was Eleanor Roosevelt. I feel <laughs> so silly referencing no, a no, animated it's, turtle. It's actually it's so great <laughs> that that's included in popular culture because it's a great quote, and otherwise people wouldn't know of it. That is true. Yeah. Well, now... I will use Eleanor Roosevelt <laughs> next time I reference it. I only know the origin because I'm long in the tooth. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully you have enjoyed your time talking about this awesome paper. And uh, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much. What a lovely conversation. Who knew we could cover both social participation for patients with tetraplegia and talk about Eleanor Roosevelt? And the second article we have for you in this episode, Anxiety in Response to Sustaining Spinal Cord Injuries and Disorders, When Should Clinicians Be Concerned? It is my pleasure to introduce two of the authors, psychologist Dr. Jane Duff and the psychologist Lucy Grant. Thanks for coming on to the Rehab Cast. Please tell us more about you. 
Hi, my name is Dr. Jane Duff. I'm a consultant clinical psychologist. I work at the National Spinal Injury Centre at Stoke Mandeville Hospital, which is in Aylesbury in the UK. And I am involved with ISCOS in terms of the psychosocial special interest group and also a member of the ISCOS basic psychology data set, which connects specifically with this work in that one of the measures on it which is recommended is the generalised anxiety disorder measure, which we are kind of have looked at in this paper. I'm also chair of the UK and Ireland Spinal Injury Psychology Advisory Group. And that was also connected with this work in relation to recent screening and national standard setting and a report that has been published associated with that. And it's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Hi there, uh, my name is Lucy Grant and I am the assistant psychologist at the National Spinal Injury Centre, so working with Jane. And I've been working at the NSIC for around about a year and a half now. So yeah, time has flown by, really enjoyed my time there. I'm also kind of a member of the Spinal Injury Psychology Advisory Group or SIPAG, as Jane has mentioned, and also at the moment chairing the assistant SIPAG group for that. So yeah, lovely to be here and thank you for having us both on. Awesome. And we're so glad that you're here to talk about this. And my typical pattern is for us to kind of open up first, what led to even do this study? What are the pieces and things that kind of led up to even asking this question? I guess it's been informed initially by, we previously have used a hospital anxiety depression scale. And when that came under license, we then wanted to move to a non-proprietorial scale and considered the GAD-7 for that. Also, it coincided timing-wise with the ISCOS Psychology Basic Data Set. And our co-authors, Dr. Kimberly Monden and Dr. Jennifer Coker, were involved with myself on the data set. And we shared on one of the calls that we all had GAD data. And part of the difficulty was that there's been no spinal cord injury research to look at cutoffs using the GAD. And we thought it was an, an ideal opportunity to share data and you know begin to look at that in spinal cord injury. And then Lucy, tell me, were there things that you kind of had rumbling around to kind of help pull this together or kind of what brought you into this project? So it was actually just, I think mainly Jane, just in talking with our colleagues in the United States was kind of the initial prompt for this, um, but approaching me to start working out the how this would be done and the kind of more methodological side of things, how we would ethically allow the data sharing, uh, how we would start to compile the data as well for both the two United States samples as well as our UK sample. They were retrospectively collected, so we weren't in control of kind of how we'd all coded that data. So my kind of role into this was how to set that all up and allow for more kind of seamless recoding things to align the three samples and then start getting into it that way and I think just I've kind of been working a little bit more closely with anxiety within spinal cord injury just in sort of my own research interests and a couple of the other projects that I've been working on as well more so than kind of some of the other psychological measures or you know things like depression which is a bit more widely studied within spinal cord injury. So the fact that this aligned quite nicely with just studying anxiety and really sharing the importance of that and recognising that, as well as, you know, just screening in general and why that's so important. So, yeah, that was kind of my role into that. And then 
the initial steps towards really getting the research underway. I like that you bring up the screening piece because I'd be curious to get both of your takes on when you're thinking about a tool to screen for depression or anxiety in your paper, you kind of talk about different levels or different types of cutoffs and things. And I'm curious what your thoughts were as you were building the methods, what were you hoping to create or help elucidate a little bit in terms of a screening tool's goals and aims to help the clinicians and the patients get better? That's really crucial, Bill, because one of the key issues is that screening can be done by any member of the MDT. It's not just psychologists, particularly with the GAD and the PHQ. And so people feeling a measure is accessible enough, but also about screening burden. So the GAD has the two item, which is the brief screen, and then the seven additional and the same similar kind of pattern with the PHQ. And I think it's really important. I mean, I think I'm passionate about screening because we under-recognise mental health disorders across the board in spinal cord injury, rehabilitation and care, and to gain consensus about a measure and for us to know about incidence rates and begin to really tackle what people's needs are and treatment needs and the kind of significant impact that anxiety can have on quality of life. So getting the right measure around burden and kind of right psychometrics and everything, but it's also easy to administer and accessible. That's really important. Awesome. And Lucy, what what are your thoughts? What what goes into a good screening tool? And when you're building the methods for this type of study, what are the things you brought in and thought about and considered when you were kind of building this, this method section? So, yeah, I agree with Jane. I think having um, something that's the brevity of a scale is, is very important in terms of allowing it to be accessible and especially when a lot of healthcare provision is quite stretched and resources are stretched, you know, burnout and we all know kind of post-COVID burnout as well. So something that's really short and accessible is important. Uh, and I think because of that, the more people who use the, the measures, um, the more confidence they get in that as well. I think with the GAD2 and the GAD7 in particular, for spinal cord injury population, there's a lot of variability in the literature as well. Previous research, for example, looking at the GAD7, uh, there's been various cutoff scores for that. That's not just limited to spinal cord injury, but the fact that it's been studied less within that population means that for someone starting out to try and locate which measure is good to use with someone who has a spinal cord injury and not knowing which cutoff threshold to use could really be quite off-putting. Similarly for the GAD2, that's not really been, uh, a cutoff score has never been studied for that population before. So for our research to kind of be the first to really look at that and see a cutoff of three, for example, is used with the general population But really, is that going to be good enough for a spinal cord injured population as well? So being able to to clarify that is really going to hopefully increase the usability of that measure and to reduce any concern over which threshold is optimal or what to look for in terms of picking the best measure and the best threshold to then use with your clients. Very well said by both of you. And I, I think those are excellent points. Moving now through as you're building that methods and you're, you're thinking about what actually uh, you're looking at, 
that patient population. I'd be curious for one of you to talk about what ultimately became the the patients that you then were able to access and run through this thought diagram algorithm to get some of this information for the results. So there was three patient populations. There's our our own, which is an inpatient patient population, and then our co-authors in the United States, Dr. Jan Coco and and Dr. Kim Mondon also had previous data that they had collected in studies, one at the Craig and one at Minnesota um, University Medical School. And they were community samples, one of which was a sample on the back of a larger study as part of the COVID pandemic. And so I think it adds a strength to um, to the data to have that across the lifespan approach and initial rehabilitation through to community transition. That was really important to us and also the international nature of it as well. Lucy, can you talk about, you know, every study starts out with this big group of people that could be included in the study, and then it ultimately ends up getting whittled down to the group that you actually comment on. And I'm curious if you can walk through kind of how many patients we actually end up with about and kind of what were those things that led to some of the people, unfortunately, not being able to be included in this study? So if I start off with the UK sample, the inpatient sample. So for us, we were just looking initially at all adults who had sustained a spinal cord injury. So anyone aged 18 or over. Usually the way the system kind of works with our particular rehabilitation unit, the NSIC, patients can be admitted quite soon after sustaining spinal cord injury. So you can get people with time since injury, anything from a couple of months to, you know, maybe up to a year, sometimes a little bit more, but on average kind of fairly soon after injury and come in here for their kind of primary rehabilitation. When patients come into the NSSC as well, we have what's called the Stoke Mandeville Spinal Needs Assessment Checklist. So this is quite a large document covering 10 different domains of rehabilitation. So for example, physical health care, um, skin and posture, bladder, bowel management, things like that. One of those is the psychological health section, which includes the GAD7 measure. Part of our kind of inclusion criteria as well, we were looking at first time admissions who had completed that first NAC, as we kind of shorten it to. So that first needs assessment checklist so that they had complete GAD7 data and also kind of hopefully having as complete demographic data as well. For the two other US community samples, it was similar in that they were recruiting for adults who had sustained spinal cord injury. The exclusion criteria across all of the samples, including ours, is anyone who couldn't understand or comprehend spoken or or written English, just in terms of being able to accurately complete the GAD7 measure. Of course, incomplete GAD7 data or GAD2. So the GAD2 is taken from the GAD7, but any of those that were incomplete would have had to be removed. So... Overall, there were 326, I believe, participants in the UK sample, 181 from the University of Minnesota sample, and um, 402 from the Craig Hospital sample. So all in all, we had 909, I believe that is, (laughs) participants, so a really large sample size. Um, So yeah, over 900 is obviously great. 
I think just kind of piggybacking off a little bit with what Jane said previously in terms of uh, sort of the diversity of that sample and the fact that two were a community. One was based around about kind of the COVID-19 pandemic and research to do with that and ours being inpatient. Um, We weren't sure whether all of the samples would be consistent in what was found. So initial steps with the research were just trying to examine each sample individually and then compare them that way before doing a combined sample. And looking at the results, they were all very comparable across samples. So again, I think that really speaks to how important this research is. It's not only kind of the first to be looking at all of this for spinal cord injury, but also just the fact that it's so cross-cultural and really kind of diverse sample vast differences in time since injury and yet all came out with kind of the same result which is very interesting and quite exciting as well when we were doing it. Absolutely and Lucy you've already hinted at this but let's move into the results now and kind of thinking about you know comparing these different measures and screening tools for this roughly 900 patients. What ultimately were you able to pull out of this and what are the different takeaways you have from the results? One of the first things that we wanted to look at was, uh, I mentioned earlier about the kind of variability in cutoff score for the GAD7. So just starting off with the GAD7, we wanted to look at a cutoff of 10 or above and compare that with a cutoff of 8 or above to see occurrence of anxiety symptoms within each individual sample and then as a combined sample as well, just to get an indication of what kind of occurrence it is out there and how different that would be based on cutoff. Previous literature has suggested that a cutoff for the GAD7, anything from 7 or above up to 10 or above is acceptable. The original paper says 10 and above. Um, that was then revised with a kind of community sample or I think patient sample as well to 8 or above. And similarly, there's a, an initiative in the UK I think one is mirrored in the United States as well for kind of improving access to mental health and they have stipulated nationally that it's a cutoff of eight. So really we were just kind of wanting to compare the eight or ten cutoff to see which might be better or which might capture kind of whether they would be capturing vastly different percentages of anxiety occurrence. So based on using a cutoff of eight or above it was around about 21 percent of anxiety occurrence across the samples that was in the combined samples across around about 900 people. That dropped quite substantially to about 15% when a cutoff of 10 was used. And again, just kind of comparing those percentages with previous literature, we noticed that the cutoff of eight or above is more consistent. So other research into this have found about 20 to 30% anxiety prevalence. So our occurrence of anxiety with the cutoff of eight on the GAD7 seemed to be quite consistent with that. So once we kind of established that, we then wanted to look at using each of those cutoffs, so the eight compared to the 10, which would be the best cutoff for the GAD2 in relation to that. So this was where we did um, what's called a rock curve analysis, which is looking at sensitivity and specificity. So I can explain that a little bit more if needed. Yeah, please go ahead and dive into that, because I feel like that's something that we all feel like we know, but it's always helpful to go over it again. Yes, absolutely. It can get quite confusing, so it's understandable that we feel we know it, but sometimes the specifics can escape us. So yeah, of course, so sensitivity 
is the ability of a test to kind of correctly identify what we would call true positives. So the number of people who have a particular disease. So in this case, we're kind of labeling the disease as anxiety and seeing how many is accurately able to identify as being positive. So if you have anxiety, are you able to detect that anxiety? Specificity is kind of a bit the reverse of that. It's sort of the ability of a a test to determine um, whether those without anxiety correctly do not have anxiety. So those are kind of broadly speaking, what we were looking at is just the nature of a test at discriminating whether you do have a disease and whether you don't have a disease. The, the tricky thing about sensitivity and specificity is the more sensitive a measure is, the less specific a measure is. So it's a real balance between you want to optimize both in order to have optimal measure with that. So we were kind of looking to see using a cutoff of eight, what is the most sensitive and the most specific? Is it a cutoff of one or above, two or above, or three and above on the GAD2? And doing the same, comparing that with a cutoff of 10 or above on the GAD7. That's perfect. The way I remember it that I don't know if anyone else will find interesting or not is which one rules in, which one rules out is the little phrase of spin and snout. So a specific test rules things in and a sensitive test rules it out. So spin and snout is how I have to think about it before I actually talk about it. It's a really good way of distinguishing the two. Yeah, to make things a bit more confusing, we also looked at positive predictive value and negative predictive value, which again is very similar to the sensitivity and specificity but slightly different. Um, The way I kind of like to view it is if sensitivity and specificity is looking at what kind of clinicians or physicians would appreciate. Um, So in other words, how good is the test? Whereas positive and negative predictive value is more looking at it from the patient or the client side of things. So it's more about if I received a positive test result or if I received a For example, in this case, um, being told that I have anxiety, how true is it that I do actually have anxiety? And similarly, the opposite, negative. So if I've been given a negative result, so in other words, if I've been told that I don't have anxiety, how correct is it that I actually don't? So again, seems very similar to sensitivity and specificity. But in this case, if we think more, once you have received that diagnosis, if you like, whereas sensitivity specificity is more about the ability of the measure itself to distinguish. So hopefully that's a bit more clear. (laughs) That's great. You explained it way better than I could. Um, So thank you for doing that. And now as we're moving into like what you actually found with those measures, I'm curious what types of cutoffs and things kind of talk through what, what that, those different measures and how that looked and what were you able to walk away from this with? As I said, we did decide to do all of these tests with each individual sample first and then compare those results across the board just to see whether there were any of the samples that were especially different from the other ones before then combining and doing the overall analysis again on on the combined sample. So it was great to see that when we ran the test individually, all of the sort of sensitivity and specificity calculations were all very comparable across samples. So that meant that we felt we were then able to combine the data and rerun the analysis to get combined sample results. In terms of sensitivity and specificity and how that related to 
both the GAD2 and the GAD7, it was quite interesting to see that a different GAD2 recommendation came from depending on which cutoff of the GAD7 you used. So using the GAD7 of a score of 8 or above, so using that as your measure of do you have anxiety if you score 8 or above versus do you not have anxiety if you score below that, we realised that by prioritising sensitivity, so in other words, by capturing the greatest number of people who may have anxiety or are showing symptoms of, of anxiety occurrence there, a cutoff of 2 or above on the GAD2 was optimal. Alternatively, by using a cutoff of 10 or above on the GAD7, our results showed that by, again, prioritising sensitivity, a cutoff of 3 or above on the GAD2 was optimal. So quite interesting to see that the higher the threshold you choose on the GAD7, the higher the threshold you should pick on the GAD2. And just being mindful of that, I think, for clinicians using the GAD2 and or the GAD7 for the first time, just if you want to prioritise sensitivity to make sure that you're recognising the maximum number of people who could potentially have anxiety or go on to develop anxiety, being a bit more cautious and choosing the lower uh, either GAD2 or GAD7 cutoff is really the way to go. And yeah, that, that overall was our main recommendation there. Awesome. And Jane, what, what are your thoughts? What are, what are your takeaways from the results or what are the highlights that you really resonated with? I think the main thing in terms of clinical implications is to increase the people's awareness and knowledge of these measures. And also in rehabilitation, I'm really conscious clinically that People with spinal cord injury can have issues in terms of fear of falling or anxieties around bladder management or bowel management and accidents. And they can start a bit of a trickle effect in terms of symptoms of anxiety, which if we use the GAD2 or the GAD7 to begin to detect some of those concerns, we could enable people to gain additional self-management skills, additional confidence, and hopefully not for it to become an anxiety disorder and hopefully not for it to have you know, quite significant consequences in terms of quality of life, social participation, and all of those much more disabling aspects when people are discharged from hospital. So I think hopefully raising awareness of this measure, the ISCOS recommendations that it be used in terms of screening and spinal cord injury, and then kind of helping, as, as Lucy said earlier, clinicians to make decisions about that cutoff and when to escalate, because the GAD2 and the GAD7 is just a screening measure. What it does is identify people that need to be escalated to a cl clinician-led mental health assessment. And you're more um, efficiently using those resources by using a screening measure as well. Totally. I think that's the great thing about a good screening tool is it the hairs on your neck kind of go up a little bit. You're curious. You need a little bit more of a tangible way to help organize your thoughts and figure out if this is just me reading into this more than it is, or is this something I need to do more about? And that's where these types of tools are so handy to help triage those next steps. And I always appreciate a, a wider net cast to try and help the whole person. Because one thing I think we as a whole group of rehab professionals do a great job of is treating the whole person and not just the disease process. And this, in my mind, is just another tool in that tool belt to make sure that we're addressing the anxieties, the stressors, the layers of depression and frustrations that go along with spinal cord injury or any of the other rehab diagnoses. And I, I think it's great. Bill, thank you so much.
Do you have any other closing thoughts or things you want to make sure that listeners have out there when they're reading through your paper or other uh, pearls of wisdom that you have as clinicians in this area? Quite similar to maybe just the end of your last question there, actually, what prior research has found with the trajectory of anxiety as well. So we have noticed that anxiety doesn't always peak kind of initially after injury. Similarly, it doesn't always peak during time at a rehabilitation center, if that's somewhere that a patient or a client is able to go. What sometimes does happen is people present with very low levels of anxiety or not having anxiety at all, really. But one to two years post-discharge, so once they're back home in the community, that's when their anxiety level really spikes and becomes of clinical concern. So again, just relating that directly with our study and, and what we found with our results is by using those kind of more conservative GAD2 cutoff of two or above and GAD7 cutoff of eight or above, but being more conservative and really trying to capture the people who potentially would be most at risk. I think you're also then going to capture the same group of people who might have low levels of anxiety, but would later go on to be quite vulnerable to anxiety itself and or other kind of comorbid psychological problems. So I think that was just kind of another thing to address just with the clinical significance of our results really and how important they are for people to bear in mind when they're trying to best help people as you say in a very holistic whole person way. Just picking up on Lucy's comment that underlies why we got involved in this research to begin with in terms of screening and standards for psychology. Professor Bombardier's work, the clinical practice guidelines in, in spinal cord injury you know, the need for routine screening throughout someone's lifespan is, you know, is so crucial to help pick up that kind of need and kind of difficulties. And particularly as people age with injury, when I see people who have had a spinal cord injury 20, 30 years and have deteriorating shoulder function, difficulties pushing, all of those kind of things, it can really feel how would they describe it as almost like a second spinal cord injury that they're having to adapt to so that lifelong screening is, is really crucial. I couldn't have said it better myself. And you're so right that it's the thing that you have to keep watching to make sure you're bringing that whole person into the room with you and helping them out as best you can. With that, I think it would be a good time for us to transition into the lightning round questions. Tell me a piece of good advice you've received. Probably to believe in myself more. <laughs> I think it's probably a failing we all have. Um, you know, kind of the it, what's labelled the imposter syndrome kind of thing. That um, we're more attuned to, but what we might not be good at than what we are. So yeah, I'd probably go with that. I hate to say the same, but I think it has to be the same. Um, <laughs> I think it's quite ironic that we're kind of talking about anxiety because what I get told quite a lot is just to stop worrying. And yes, you really trust in yourself, believe in yourself a bit more, that kind of acceptance that things will work out and you tend to be more capable than you think you are. So yeah, very similar to Jane's, unfortunately, but yeah, it has to be, has to be that. <laughs> Believe in yourself. If you take nothing away, take take that away. All right, next question. You're facing a really big decision and you need some help figuring out what do you do or who do you contact? What What's the process you go through to help work through that problem? I mean, I'm very lucky that I have a very supportive family and friend network. So I think any of them, honestly, if I was to 
share with them something that big decision that I had to work through bouncing ideas off with any family member or any friend would be would be really beneficial more specifically I have a group of friends who I went to university with who we all study very similar things with undergraduate in psychology and kind of continuing with psychology as a master's degree I think having like-minded people can also be quite helpful so yeah they're the ones that I would turn to and a very supportive partner as well who has to get a mention and a cat so yeah that's me (laughs) they maybe can't (laughs) offer very much advice but they're there to be something to hug so (laughs) I think I tend to think about it quite a bit to begin with you know kind of work out pros and cons and weigh up I had a period of time in my life when I was in limbo for quite a while and unable to move forward. And I think I learned then that, you know, the footman and Lazarus, the kind of coping effectiveness training bit, applying the, you know, the right emotion focused bits or problem focused bits to the right kind of stressors and difficulties. And particularly when you're unable, as in, you know, spinal cord injury, there's things that are out of your control. And when you try and influence those with a problem solving approach that's when you need to kind of work more work on the emotional processing side I tend to take that as my initial go-to and then sense check it with friends and family and and things like that who who know me well really makes sense I frequently get stuck in my head and then uh, find that I have to talk with someone to actually get it out but that's only after I've molded around in my mind for days sometimes before I feel like I can bring it up with anybody else We've talked about some serious stuff. Let's jump into a, a more fun question. So you happen to be at the ACRM conference, which coming up will be in Atlanta, and you happen to find there's $40 or uh, an equivalent in your suitcase that you didn't know was there. What do you do with that extra money? Oh, so it's all 40. It's, it's, it's my personal money. It's your $40. You found it. You found it in your oh. suitcase. It's yours. I think depending on the location of the conference, I think I'd go and find something really fun to do that I wouldn't perhaps have done otherwise. A local landmark or um, taking in a play or the theatre or concert or something like that. Yeah. Can I steal Jane's answer? Because that sounds... (laughs) Yeah, I think aside from maybe trying to use it for something that I couldn't get elsewhere, maybe similar in the sense of, you know, if there's something, you said Atlanta, right? Mm -hmm. So if there's something specific to Atlanta, then maybe kind of a landmark or something, if you had to then pay to go and see or do that, that particular thing, then yeah, that. I also have this slightly strange thing that wherever I go, I like to try what kind of coffee they have. So I think part of that would also have to go to a coffee, just test out how it compares to other places that have been, other coffees I've been lucky enough to try. (laughs) What advice would you give yourself if you could go back in time and tell your 22-year-old self something that you wish you would have known then? It's really interesting, Bill. 22 in the UK is... And Lucy's in, in this zone in that it's a really pivotal moment between you've done your first degree in psychology and you're desperately trying to get onto the clinical doctoral training and it's really competitive and really difficult. I'd kind of go back and say, you did make it, you can make it. <laughs> you know, keep, keep again, the believing in yourself bit, keep 
hold hold true to the fact that it's going to come good. And then for me, I think it would have to be, yeah, just about allowing myself to have a bit more fun, I think. So I think I was so used to kind of, yeah, as Jane says, that competitiveness, I think, is ingrained quite early on when you get situated in psychology. It's kind of competitive from the get-go. And I think because of that, and then maybe just being a bit of a natural overthinker and wanting to yeah get really kind of stuck in and make sure that I never fell below the standard that is needed of you or maybe expectations that you put on yourself as well I think we can all be quite strict on ourselves so as much as that's good in some ways you know just having that kind of strong work ethic I think just not getting inside my head so much and just allowing myself to enjoy the experience I think at 22 in particular I yeah had just finished my undergraduate. I was very tired of the kind of university sort of pressure, pressure to keep studying. I was adamant that I wouldn't do any more studying. And then the following year did a master's that I absolutely loved, enjoyed every second of it. And then I was adamant that I wouldn't want to become a clinical psychologist because that's even more challenging and it's too competitive for me. I'll never get on. I'm not good enough for that. And then here I am as an assistant psychologist, dying to become a clinical psychologist and um, yeah, really kind of hoping to to get on with the next applicate round of applications. So yeah, so I think if I spent less time worrying and more time just enjoying the whole process, I think I would have ended up in the same position because life kind of sometimes works that way. So that would be my advice for younger me. <laughs> Well said. And it's kind of funny, we kept coming back to anxiety the whole way through this conversation. So it's definitely something that we definitely should talk more with our patients about and help address and help people move forward. Thank you both for being here. It's been an absolute pleasure. And hopefully you'll keep participating in the publications and maybe listen to a few rehab casts on the way too. Bill, thank you so much for inviting us and for kind of recognizing the paper and and celebrating it through the podcast. We really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And making us feel so comfortable as well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to both discussions on this episode of the ACRM Rehabcast. For more information on spinal cord injury, be sure to review the archives of PM&R Journal. You may even find information about how to assist people with a spinal cord injury who have difficulty controlling their own body temperature. The answer to the pop quiz is poikilothermia, spelled P-O-I-K-I-L-O-T-H-E-R-M-I-A. We appreciate you joining us today on the ACRM Rehabcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you are listening right now. It really helps us spread the word about this wonderful field of rehabilitation. I'm Dr. Bill Niehaus from the University of Colorado. Follow me on Twitter at NHAUSMD. Special thanks to Philip Frobos, who produced this episode. He is definitely the wizard who makes the magic of the rehab cast possible. And as always, here is the standard closing promotional material. Come celebrate ACRM's 100th International Rehabilitation Conference in Atlanta later this year. The core ACRM 2023 conference will be running from October 30th to November 2nd. It is never too late to register. If somehow you don't manage to make it this year, definitely follow us on social media. We'll be using the hashtag ACRM2023. Thanks for listening.